My guest today is Prague icon Stephen Wilson, who of course is well known for his work with Porcupine Tree and a highly successful solo career. I was able to speak with him live in person before the last show of his U.S. Hand Kanadi Race Tour. We discuss a range of topics from his tour to the current state of rock to the creation of some of his Porcupine Tree albums. I'd like to welcome Stephen Wilson. Hey man, good to see you. How's it going? I'm very good, Roy. How are you? Doing good. In Atlanta, you met a, a buddy that I also work with. You wrote something for right, his Jeff. book. Right, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. We were there in the New York show when you had, I guess, the cold. Right, he mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, said, he said he was there, yeah. yeah. So that was a really unique show. One I'll remember for a long time because I really wanted to see your solo show. You, I didn't know you were coming down here yet. It wasn't announced. We flew up there. We did. It was a, like a work thing. And was so bummed when the announcement came out. It's like, oh, man, this is a disappointment. But... What drove you to find a way to do the show and to do it in such a unique way? And it turned out to be amazing. Well, thank you. Uh, okay, I think um, what drove me to do the show was the knowledge that people had been planning to attend for months. You know, and one thing, one thing I think I, I kind of implicitly understand about shows, particularly in America, is people travel from sometimes different countries. There's people here from, I just met some fans from Costa Rica here. Yeah. So for me to cancel a show, because I've got a cold, right. uh, means not not only the, you know, the just the financial thing, but all the time people have taken days off work and they've booked plane tickets and they've booked hotels and they've been looking forward to it for months. And I, I feel a responsibility to them. Now, in New York, I was very lucky because I had Ninette along with me. I don't know what I would have done if Ninette hadn't been there because Ninette was able to sing four or five songs that she wouldn't normally have sung. Um, so we got through it and I think we kind of made a very difficult situation. As you say, we turned it into something that we would, was quite unique. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't, honestly, it wasn't fun for me. <laughs> I, I felt so ill and I had no voice at all. Uh, but I was very happy to not let people down right. and I was even happier when I realized that people not only didn't feel let down they feel they felt like they'd seen something spe even right, more special, special than they might have done you know sure. so listen it wasn't my fate it wasn't my favorite gig it wasn't my finest hour but I'm happy that nobody went away thinking that they wanted their money back or any of that stuff you know I'm curious when, because uh, one of the highlights, I think, and I and I was out there in the audience, and when, when she sang Hand Kanadi Race and went up yeah. in the second chorus, I think it was, yeah. uh, everyone just stood up. That was like the change in the show, because up until yeah. that point, no one knew what was really going to happen. Yeah. Was that planned, or did you know she was going to do that? Well, she does it on the album. She sings backing vocals on the album. You're okay, it's not up she, the front, so you don't hear it. Okay. She sings the upper octave, so she was just doing what she does on the record. Okay. Yeah, when you actually see her doing it in the, in, in the flesh, it's, she's a force of nature. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she's incredible. Well, that was pretty cool. Um, is this the last show, finally? Is there still still more? Two uh, shows in India. Have you had other trouble in terms of um, being able to manage such a long long tour? This has been longer probably than most tours I think you've done in the past, right? I've never had a problem before that in New York. I actually had to cancel the show after New York, Chicago. I canceled right. one. Uh, I, was, I, felt, I felt okay about doing that because we had two nights in the same venue, so I figured the people that traveled at least would get to see one show. That's the only time I've ever had to cancel a show, and it's the only time I've ever been so sick I couldn't 
at least do some kind of performance. And one thing I would say that I kind of have in my favor is that the show is not a vocal dominated show. So I don't know how much time I'm singing. I've never analyzed it, but probably 60% of the show yeah. is vocal and 40% is instrumental. So my voice gets a lot of time to rest between singing. It's not like, you know, a Beyonce show where she's singing like 99% of the time. Right. And that's a real strain on, on your voice. But with me, I, I get a lot of time to rest my voice. So I've not had problems. I've not had, touch wood, I've not had problems. <laughs> Uh, and except for that one time, and I think that was more to do with me having a terrible cold. Yeah, no, that can happen. That's just a, a normal thing. But the the um, sort of just being on the road and all that stuff. It's, at this point, you're you know a veteran well, you of know this, what? and you've gotten used to it. You know what? I don't. I don't. Um, I, I I make sure that the touring touring uh, experience is pretty pleasant. I don't. I don't skimp on making sure everyone. It's comfortable. Everyone has their own hotel room every few days. The bus is really comfortable. It's the top line buses. We're all a bit older, you know. Yeah. If, we were, if we were like in our twenties and touring around in a transit bus, have you seen that movie Green Room? No. About the punk band. Okay, no. well, if you see that movie Green Room, that's there. But I know, I know what you're getting at. Yeah, touring around in the back of a transit bus and siphoning petrol, stealing petrol <laughs> from parked vehicles just to get to the next. Year. I'm too old to be doing that. All the guys that work for me are too old to be doing that. So we, I don't make any money touring, but I have a very pleasant experience doing it because it's a very comfortable touring experience. So um, it's not it's not as grueling as you might think. Right. What about you? You have sort of stayed away from largely the maybe like the U.S. festivals and these Prague cruises and things like that. Is that stuff you ever get asked to do or stuff you choose to not do or I know you did uh, I think be Prague my friend that festival in Spain okay um, I do get asked to do those festivals I don't like the idea of um, generic music festivals um, I don't like the idea that my music is just appealing to people who like progressive rock because it doesn't and for me to align myself with a community that has a specific set of parameters in terms of what they listen to and what they like is not something that really interests me that's a tough thing, right? I mean, you can get sucked into that sometimes without even wanting to be, right? Like the 80s hair bands, like that some never set out to be a hair band. They were just playing rock and all of a sudden you get called that and there's you're stuck. There's not, nothing you can do. Well, also there's, there's a degree of preaching to the converted, which can be fun, you know, but I like, you know, I like to play to my audiences and my audiences will be young girls, young kids, older guys, you know, they'll be the older guys in the Yes t-shirts, but then they'll be the young kids in the Radiohead and Nine Inch Nails t-shirts. Sure. I like that about my audience. I don't want to go and suddenly say, hey, I'm aligning myself with this subgenre, and I'm going to do... Now, I did do one, I did the, the Spanish one, because they allowed me to pick all the other bands on my day, and that was my condition. Oh, okay. I said, I'll do it, 
So is that like Pineapple Thief was one, Opeth, right? Opeth, Magma, Pineapple Thief. Right. So I said I, I said, I will pick bands that subscribe to your idea of progressive rock, but I will pick my idea of progressive rock bands. Okay. So I was able to, and I did that once before in, in a German festival. Um, I forget what it's called, but it was in Lorelei, and it's a beautiful location. Anyway, and there was the same thing. I said, I'll do it, but I want to pick all the other bands. And again, I picked Magma, Pineapple Thief, <laughs> uh, Crippled Black Phoenix I had then on that one. Um, so those are, the, those are the only two one, those are the only two generic progressive rock festivals I've ever done. Well, no, that's right. not true. I did some with Paul Van Tree years ago, but as a solo, the only two I've ever done, and the condition both times was, I want to pick all the other bands. Right. And the promoter agreed, so I was kind of stuck then. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I enjoyed them. I did enjoy them, but um, I, I, I think I prefer to, to create my own audience, not cater for an existing one. Do you know Fair what enough, I mean? Yeah. No, I think it served you well. Um, you hear a lot about how rock isn't as uh, popular now and all that kind of stuff. I read an article today, at, or maybe it was today or yesterday in the New York Times that I saw, where some guy wrote a piece where he said, rock isn't dead, it's just old. The audience is old, the, the guys that invented the largely what we listen to now are old, passed away this year as we know. So what do you think about that, that it's... And he says it's just become it's become jazz. It's not going to go away, but it's it's that. Sorry, the, ja the jazz is a very good analogy. It's become a uh, it's it's no longer a mainstream phenomenon. There was a time, many years, rock music was mainstream music, right? And it isn't anymore. It, it has become ja the jazz analogy is very good. I think ja jazz. Well, there was a time when jazz was mainstream and became an underground music, largely because rock music came along and kind of pushed it out. And I think now we live in a world where, where hip-hop culture and DJ culture has largely marginalized rock music. Rock music now is, is underground music. It's very hard to be a mainstream artist and play rock music. There are exceptions, of course, Foo Fighters and things. But you know, even bands like Foo Fighters, it's I mean, been around 20 been years. 20, 30 years, right, you yeah. know. And I was going to say Radiohead, but the same is true. Radiohead have been around for, for, for you know, pushing 30 years now. So to be a mainstream rock artist now, I think, is almost impossible. But there is still a substantial audience for it. I wouldn't say, I think the. The whole thing about the old and new, listen, when you go and see my shows, you'll see old people and you'll see young people. I think there is a new audience for rock music. Of course there is. Um, but they are having to discover it the hard way. It's not being promoted to them. It's not in the mainstream. Right. They're right. having to find it. And a lot, of the, a lot of the kids I talk to, I hear the same story, which is my dad's record collection, my mom's record collection, da-di-da. My dad took me to see da-di-da when I was a kid. And it's almost like it's been passed down as a generational thing because they can't really, they're not really aware of rock music in the mainstream. Yeah. So it's been passed down through generations and there's still a lot of love for it. And I think there will, there will continue to be an audience for rock music, but there's no doubt that it will never have the same mainstream critical impact that it did in the 70s, 80s, and even in the 90s, which is unfortunate for someone like me, who's, I make rock music, and nowadays it's almost impossible to to reach that kind of critical mass, which I, you know, I would be lying if I said I wouldn't like to. I would love to play stadiums. I would love to be on the TV. I would love to be on the radio. I would love to have millions of fans. But um, I think it's almost impossible playing rock music now to do that. 
uh, you kind of hit a wall, tough, yeah. which yeah. is the, which is the wall that we call the media. The media right. they, they don't give rock music. You know, for, there are hundreds of stations that play rock music, but they only play oldies. Right. So they're appealing only to that oldie demographic. You know. So for new rock music now, it's it's very hard to to make any impression. I think. Um, you know, one of the reasons I started even this website, which is about three years now, was um, I had a few rare albums that I was listening to that came out, all came out at the time, The Raven being one of them, and that were just driving me insane that I, no one else is, no one else knows this album. How it was eating me alive. And I had to tell everybody about this album, so I'm emailing my friends and doing this. And so that was like, well, I'll just start a blog and maybe I'll get a hundred people to listen to. So that was uh, the sort of impetus for, for starting that. And, and uh, that album I wanted to ask you a little bit about because, well, in New York, you didn't get a chance to play The Raven, assuming because of the, the, right, the right, sequence. Right. Possibly my favorite song of your career, <laughs> Me too. Porcupine Tree and Raven Solo. is. I think The Raven is the best song I ever wrote and I say that to the audience and every I, night. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, it's it's emotional to me many times when I listen to it. Yeah. Um, to sing it every night is also emotional. I want. I, I, well, I'd love to ask you a little bit about how you wrote that song, and, and you know, when was the orchestra part sort of added on to elevate it, or you know, how did it how did it get to be from the the beginning idea to you know the epic thing that it that it was? It all came together in about an hour. That's great. I love those stories. And, some, and sometimes that happens. You know, sometimes yeah. there are songs that kind of come together over months. You do something, you put it aside, you come back to it, you do a little bit more, you put it aside, it's not quite how you want it, you put it aside, you come back to it. And it, The Raven just, it was like, you know, it, it sounds pretentious in a way to say it, but it's almost like it just came to me from some other dimension. The whole song just presented itself. And, and I sat back at the end of the session and said, wow, did I really do that? Did I really make that? And I really did. And, and that, that's... The orchestral arrangement, everything, all came together in a single session. The lyrics, the piano chords, uh, it was a gift from somewhere, from someone. And then that video too, really kind of And the video that Jess did just... was, was amazing and, and really, yeah, absolutely, nailed, nailed it home, yeah. It's, it's one, it's a song that I will struggle to better the rest of my career. <laughs> but you know what, the, the great thing about it is I wrote it 20 years into my career. And to be writing your best music 20 years into your career, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll settle for that. Yeah. You know, most, most, you know, we talk, you, 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 your site is called The Prog Report, so obviously you're, you know, you're, you're kind of, um, that the blueprint for that whole kind of style of music was laid down in the 70s by a group of bands who pretty much made, made their best music in a five year time span totally. when they were in their early 20s. Yeah. And then produced, in some cases, produced nothing worthwhile ever again. <laughs> yeah. Not not always, no, not always. But some, some, of them, some of them went on to produce interesting music, but they still have this golden, and that's extraordinary to me that I'm here writing my best music ever in my 40s. Right. So I'm proud of that. Well, know? I could have gone, I, had you not done anything solo, or I never heard a solo career, I, I would have said <laughs> Sound of Music's one of my all-time favorite songs, easily. And that was, yeah, I know, love that song those. too, and we still play that song every night as well, you know, but I wrote that in my 30s, you right. know, so the stuff I wrote in my 20s, I don't think there's anything that I would, you know, I mean, not that I'm ashamed of it, but there's nothing yeah, I would put up. But you progress and stuff you think is there's better. There's nothing yeah. I would put up there in, in the top 20 songs I ever wrote, you know, so I, I think I only really started to wrote, write songs that would vie for that in my 30s. And that's, 
that is very different to what we traditionally think of. You know, all these all these guys that are passing away now, even Bowie, you know, much as I love Bowie's last album, most people would agree Bowie produced his classic work sure. in his 20s. Yes. And, you know, musical genius, but all in his 20s. And I think there's something about that that's changing now. The, the, the great, you know, if you look around you now, the people that are producing really strong, interesting rock music, it's people, guys like Michael Ackerfeld from Opeth, you know, Catatonia. These guys are in their 40s now, and right. myself included. And that's something that's very different to the way it used to be in yeah. rock music. I agree. I think it's hard to find younger bands that are as interesting as some of, right. the, some of the older artists. Or There's a few that are great, but not, not overall. But not really thinking in such, you know, experimental terms of right. pushing the envelope. And, and, and it seems to be, I think that's another, perhaps that's another reason why, coming back to your original point, Perhaps that's another reason why rock music has largely gone a little bit more underground, because the world of mainstream pop loves their pop stars to look young and sexy and da di da di da. And actually, I think the people making the best rock music now are not young and sexy. They're a little bit older, and right. uh, so we don't we don't we don't look good on posters, you know. Yeah. But um, well, I think we look all right. But you know what you know what I'm saying, you know. So I think that's maybe another reason rock music has passed into a different kind of time in a way. Is that the people making it now tend to be a little bit older, more considered. There's a more intellectual approach to it. It's less about, you know, pure inspirations. I'd really like to focus on modern prog albums and try and let people know there's a genre past Genesis and Yes and King Crimson. And, you know, I love those stuff, but we try to not focus on that and focus on stuff in the last 25 years and more. And you're a huge, humongous part of that, Porcupine Tree and so on. Um, so we did a, a list on the best albums of that. There's three uh, albums on there. The, the, the three, the first three major label ones uh, would be the ones. So In Absentia was the first album I heard. Sound of Music was the first song I heard. Really struck me as this is the next band. That's how I felt when I heard it. Right. What was making that album like going into the, that, that major label signing? It seemed to signify a little bit of a heavier shift in the, in the music. What do you recall from that era? Okay, here's the thing. I think, you know, this, in a way, this relates back to your earlier question about not doing these progressive rock festivals. I think sometimes you can be too aware of the genre you're working within. Now, the answer to your question is this. When we were making In Absentia, when I was making In Absentia, I was not interested in making a progressive rock album. Right. I was listening to Jeff Buckley's Grace. I was listening to Soundgarden's Super Unknown. Uh, I was listening to Opeth and what Michael was doing. I wasn't interested in making a progressive rock album. I just wanted to make a great pop record. And I think, you know, if ultimately, of course, that music is always there. It's in my musical DNA. The first record I ever remember hearing was Dark Side of the Moon, which is, you know, well documented. My father used to listen to that record. It's part of my DNA. So anything I do is going to almost by default have that flavor yeah. that relates, people relate to progressive rock. I'm not interested in making progressive rock records. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I, I hear you. And, I, and I've read yeah. and I know that about you when you... And, when I you... Think, and I think that anybody that says they're making a progressive rock album, by definition, is probably not. Be Let me explain by that, what I mean by that. If, you, if you're too aware of your parameters, you become a prisoner to them. How can you make progressive music 
if you're working with a set of parameters. Right, that define I agree with you. A very narrow genre of music. What's interesting about the modern progressive rock bands, the people, the bands that people associate progressive, the Opeths, the Catatonias, the, the Porcupine Trees, the, is that Opeth and Catatonia came from a, a, a metal background. Now, they were, you know, so straight away that's something that gives the music a freshness and a, pers and a perspective that is very, very contemporary and modern. So try and come back to your question because I know you, I know you want me to answer your question. It's, it's hard for me to. I think at that time um, I was very interested in cross-pollination of extreme metal music, great pop melodies, um, electronic sounds, um, kind of Jeff Buckley, the, the harmonies of, of someone like Brian Wilson or Todd Rundgren, and I was also working for the first time with a major label who had a perspective too on the kind of record that they wanted us to make. and. I guess, really, I wanted to make a record that would stand up alongside something like Grace, you know, Jeff Buckley's Grace, or... Uh, I wasn't thinking in terms of making a progressive rock album at all. And I think, also on that album, there's a very strong emphasis on songwriting, on melody. Um, the songs are all quite compact. Inside, that album's great. It's amazing. It's one of my all-time favorite albums. Me too. Albums. I'm very happy with that record. Wasn't the single the Strip the Soul, right? That was the single? I don't remember. I they, they they certainly didn't know what they had. No. Yeah, that's what they I think. Should I'm have like, why trains. wasn't... They should have released Trains, they should have released Sound of Music. I think they released Strip the Soul and Blackest Eyes, if I remember rightly. Yeah. Yeah, I think... And that was so radio-driven time back then. It was it was like the, the end of the time when you could get a single on rock radio. But it was, it was, also, sort of the but it was also the, the tail end of the... Um, the kind of post-grunge new metal era. So I think, to, to be fair to the record company, I think they were listening to songs like Blackest Eyes and Strip Soul, hearing these big riffs and thinking, ah, oh, that's yeah. the one. Yeah, they're trying to make you guys like the next tool or something. Exactly. Yeah, moving on the, to Deadwing. Um, longer songs, a bit more epic, uh, seemed like more vocal harmony stuff was, was going on. And Lazarus, of course, which is like an amazing ballad. Deadwing's a strange one because Deadwing was going to be the soundtrack to the movie and it would have been a solo record. And the songs I wrote for that soundtrack would have been my first solo record and that was Lazarus, Arriving Somewhere But Not Here. Um, a song called Happiness 3 which just came out last year on right. Four and a Half. Oh, that's from them? Okay. Uh, a song called Collecting Space which was a bonus track on Insurgentes. And all these songs, almost all of which have gradually come out over various projects over the years, were things I wrote for this soundtrack album it would have been and I think there was an element of pra pr sort of pragmatic perspective there said so, okay well if this album if this if this soundtrack is not going to happen if this you know project is not going to happen at least I should give as much you know as much of the good material the best chance it's got to get some exposure so it ended up being it's a slightly schizophrenic record because half of it was written for Porcupine Tree and half of it was written for this other record, this soundtrack. And uh, I think it stands up pretty well. I don't think it's as strong as In Absentia. There's some weak songs on it. But um, the songs that are good, I mean, I still play Lazarus. I still enjoy playing that. Uh, Arriving Somewhere But Not Here is a, is a good piece. Um, yeah, that's great. It's, it's a weird album. Some of the tracks only have me and Gavin on them. Lazarus only has me and Gavin on it, you know, so it's, it, it kind of belies its origins in a different 
in a different place. Gotcha. Uh, the next album was the next proper band for me. The next proper band. Well, that was the the, the, the reason why Fear of a, of a Blank Planet is, is significant is because then e that's one even Rolling Stone magazine ranked as one of the top progressive mm. albums of all time. Mm -hmm. So. A lot of people think that's the most progressive work you've done. I, it's I don't the heaviest. Know if, yeah, so... I think it tends to be the people that like the heavier side like that and the people that don't like the heavier side think that was the end. <laughs> I've heard both perspectives. Um, I think it's great. I think In Absentia Fear of the Blank Planet are the two best, for me, the two Porcupine Tree albums I'm most proud of. And one of the things I'm most proud about Fear of Blank Planet is that conceptually it was very strong. I had, I had just read Brett Easton Ellis' book, uh, Luna Park, and I had this idea about writing a book about how, uh, sorry, writing a book, making, making an album about how young people today were almost bombarded with technology, with pornography, with music. Sure. In many ways, Hank and I Raise was part two of that. It was more from a personal perspective, but Fear of Blank Planet is, is an album about the boredom and the disenchantment of young people and, and how to how do you infuse young people when they have everything before the age of 12 <laughs> they have everything you know I know the it's like, do you realize what you, this iPhone like how amazing that is and they just like he grew up they grow up with this and they don't realize it's the greatest thing ever ever made and when I was growing up which wasn't that long ago just even to have a TV in the house sure. was, was in my room a TV in my own bedroom was a, to have a record player in my own room I treasured my record blood. player it was it was my greatest did. thing it was it was a portal to a whole nother world yeah now they've got everything they've got the whole they've got the whole history of music <laughs> for free they got the whole history of movies for free. Crazy, they got pornography. Time, right? They got news. They got whatever they want. They got everything, and I think, and in a way, and here's the irony, I pity them. Right. And I think that's what the Fear of Blank Planet album is about. I had this really strong idea to write an album that was almost, you know, saying, in a way, it's sad. You can't get enthusiastic about anything. I was so, you know, I would I would buy one album every week or every month with my pocket money, and I would be the happiest kid on earth listening to that record over and over again, looking at the sleeve, reading the lyrics, looking at the pictures, just trying to decode the magic of this music. Sure. And now I don't think kids can get that anymore. They can't get it from anything. Um, just to see a naked lady when I was 15 was like amazing. Now you go on. You know, do you know what I mean? So sure. it's almost like too much too soon. And Fear of Blank Planet was about it. And I think it, it kind of led me to create some of my angriest, most aggressive music and heaviest music. But lyrically, I'm really pl pleased with it. It hangs together really well. And one of my favorite songs I've ever written, Sleep Together, which we, again, we play live right. every night. It's the most intense song to play live. Well, this is cool, man. Thank you so much for all of this whole interview was amazing. Thank you. Thanks to Stephen for the interview. Look for the new Blackfeet album, which Stephen is a part of, in February of next year. And for upcoming news and interviews, please check theprogreport.com. Follow us on Facebook, at The Prog Report on Twitter, or download the podcast on iTunes. Thanks. Mm -hmm.